1: It's your call for the best college football coverage, from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast.
0: And welcome back to the Cover 3 podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Bud Elliott. That's Tom Fernelli. That's Danny Cannell. I'm Chip Patterson. It's time to open up the big old bag of mail. Um, a little bit busy as we sit here and uh, record. A lot going on. And before we jump into the big old bag of mail, we wanted to make sure that we at least uh, offered some perspective, offered some thoughts on one of the a bigger stories within all of college athletics, and it's been going on for a while, as uh, as many court cases do. And you probably saw tweet after tweet after tweet of all these Supreme Court justices and the way that they were uh, questioning the NCAA about amateurism, about the the college athletics uh, environment, um, you know, player compensation, um, name, image, and likeness. All of this is going on, and the the official case is Alston or the NCAA versus. Alston. So we are privileged and that we do have an attorney here, uh, here on this show. So Tom, go ahead and let, know. <laughs> but, uh, I have I've got some questions. Uh, like I, I, just, I mentioned before we started recording an earlier show this week, as things were going on, you know, I said, it feels like something that when I know we're not going to get the actual decision until, you know, uh, what, June, was it the end of June? Yeah, yeah. I think is the is, is when they're expected. Sometimes I, I have trouble trying to follow like all, all the pieces of this, but as you were reviewing some of the, the comments during the oral, oral arguments, which is the the stage that we've had, I mean, I, I, I'm I not really the SCOTUS blog type, but man, so many writs, so many brief Amici's, you know, I, a lot of stuff going on here. Where do you think, like, amateurism seems to be, on the on the chopping block like that's what we're arguing right now is um whether or not the the players are uh it's antitrust right like isn't that ultimately what we're arguing take us through that first of all what is the the core of the actual case because it seems like it's more like the ripple effects of this case would then lead to changes in college athletics what is being argued at the core of uh ncaa v austin
2: sure so basically um The the Alston plaintiffs are claiming that athletes should be able to be paid uh, for a lot of things that would be classified as, quote, education-related expenses, right? Right now, they're allowed to have, you know, cost of attendance scholarships which and and a stipend, which does encompass, you know, a a decent amount of money. But obviously, um, the money going to athletes has not expanded uh, anywhere near the same rate that the money going to administrators, coaches, facilities, Right. Uh, And so basically the plaintiffs are are claiming that uh, the schools, which make you know the member institutions, which make up the NCAA are essentially colluding to uh, place a sort of like an artificial market cap on the compensation that you're allowed to provide these athletes, even under the definition of education related expenses. So, for instance, you know, could you have uh, could you give these kids new new iPad pros? every year if you wanted to, or MacBook Pros or, or you know, uh, service tablets. If you, Microsoft Service wants to sponsor us, awesome, we'll take that. Um, you know, could you give them high-paid internships? So there there are a lot of things here uh, to where they could have a lot more money flowing to the athletes. Uh, and the NCAA is essentially arguing that people watch college sports for the amateurism aspect of it, looking at at a line, which is probably Dicta, from a prior case uh, and, you know, trying to rely on that. Their argument is, um, I don't think it's the NCAA's argument is great here. Uh, a lot of the justices seem to be somewhat skeptical that people watch college sports, you know, solely for <laughs> the reason that the athletes are, you know, unpaid uh, some of the judges or some of the justice questioning was, was interesting and sort of reflected that in, in that they asked things like, so are, are you contending that uh, viewers are not turned off by uh, coaches being paid $10 million a year, uh, but they would be turned off if players were paid a little bit? Sort of the, you know, the, the hypocritical chicken little argument uh, here from the NCAA. Um, things don't seem to be going great, but I would caution like oral arguments are not necessarily always the, the way to, uh, you know, to, to make these things go. And the court could easily just punt on this, or make a very narrow ruling, uh, or, or look to some technicality and, and decide not to truly get further involved, uh, in college sports, P- potentially nodding to the idea that, you know, that Congress is probably going to be taking up this issue soon anyway.
0: So if Congress, uh, so do you think Congress is going to take up the issue and have wide, like is Congress going to pass wide sweeping legislation that is going to set like guardrails and a a standard and a format for name, image, and likeness?
2: Well, they're they're slightly different ideas, although they are certainly related, right? Congress is looking at a name, image, and likeness uh, bill. Also, I believe Senator Blumenthal uh, today, just scrolling Twitter here, uh, said that they're looking at doing basically like an athlete's bill of rights for compensation, things like that, which potentially could include you know, some of the issues that, that we're hearing in the Austin case. I, so, I, I just love the NCAA's argument
1: that we watch because of the amateurism. Cause like when I'm betting on a football game between 19 year olds, it's, it's their amateurism that I'm thinking about.
2: I'm not saying that nobody does. Like I've seen some people respond on Twitter. I I'm going to take them at face value that I think it, it probably does matter, you know, to, to some people, um, but I think it's a little bit crazy to think that the majority of people are watching because, you know, the athletes are, are unpaid. Um, you know, the ideas of re- like spiraling revenues came up. Uh, the, the justices also, a couple of them kind of echoed this, that, yeah, I, I think the amount was like $6,000 in, in question here in one of the examples. And they're like, look, you've, you're talking about TV contracts in the billions. Okay. $6,000 is, 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 is pocket change. When you're when you're signing those things, uh, if you look at the overall structure, now there may need to be some restructuring, like maybe college you know co- college coaches shouldn't make quite as much as pro coaches do if you want to keep this amateurism you know argument alive, right? And that was kind of suggested yesterday as well in, in the questioning.
3: I uh, I get frustrated with this all of this because the NCA has. They've kind of made their bed. Now they have to sleep in it. Like they fought this for so long when the name image and likeness, if they just would have got on board with that five years ago, 10 years ago, we could have avoided a lot of this movement, which has positioned the NCA as the bad guy. And it's Mark Emmert's fault. It's the NCA's fault because they have been so reluctant and so uh, opposed to a lot of things that I think would have kept a lot of the players happy and Like the name, image, and likeness thing to me is the perfect compromise. It doesn't take out anything from the NCAA's coffers or any of the school's coffers. It comes from an open market. What is surprising to me, and this is where I, you know, most of the people that are out there following this closely are saying, man, the Supreme Court and it's both sides of the aisle, whether it's conservative or liberal are all kind of on the same page. But what is surprising to me, and I read this line from Brett Kavanaugh, they've kind of bought into the, the talking points that have been going around from people that cover college athletics that hate the NCAA and that want it exposed, that want it blown up. So Kavanaugh's lies, uh, line says this. It does seem schools are conspiring with competitors, agreeing with competitors, let's say that. To Meaning pay, other schools. Right, right. Yeah. To pay no salaries for the workers, and this is the line that bothers me, who are making the school billions of dollars on the theory that consumers want the schools to pay their workers nothing, and that seems entire circular and even somewhat disturbing. Now, we throw around those terms, billions of dollars, and Kavanaugh did right here, making the school billions of dollars. Uh, surely he's aware that out of the 351 Division I athletic programs, only 25 of them are not underwater that operate at a deficit. The average of the 351 is $16 million at a deficit. So like, I don't like when we throw around these big buzzword terms and terms like making billions of dollars, when yes, there are contracts that exchange hands for billions of dollars, but it's not like the schools are rolling in dough because I worry about Mm -hmm. if all of a sudden we are required to pay, or these athletes become employees, of what how that destroys the true model of amateurism which benefits thousands upon thousands of student athletes that are actually the non-revenue sports the baseball the soccer the women's tennis who actually do benefit and are overcompensated with what they do like that's to me what worries me about what is happening right now do you believe I- the accounting like, yes. No,
2: really- hell no. They 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 rig it on purpose. They 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 do this incredible spend down with, with all these capital expenditures and the exorbitant coaching salaries. Like they they have an absolute motive to show they're not making any money. The schools that are are quote unquote making money just can't find any more places to spend down, so they end up. Damn it! All right, we got to show a profit. Like far more schools. Like like th- this is intentional, guys. But I do, I do believe there's a difference that like what you're getting. There's no Power Five school out there that's losing money.
0: Well, like what you're getting in the unless by choice in the Southland Conference or what you're getting in. And they want to keep their tax
2: exempt status. Yeah, that's right. That's the other part of this is like if you start showing huge profits and you don't have the spend down, government like, eh, I don't know. This looks really like a business, guys. Right now they spend down like crazy. Like, all right, let's hire ten more analysts. You know, to show that they really don't have. The funds. It's it's intentional. It's it's a shell game.
0: But the do the schools like is the the core of the NCAA uh, Austin case? Do you think that the way that the argument is has unfolded so far? Does it turn into the employee model where the schools have to be on the line for the compensation? Because my understanding of name, image, and likeness, and and I'm just a, a dumb podcast host, is the idea that we are just no longer going to penalize you for being able to go and benefit off your name, image, and likeness on the open market. It's not asking the schools to to bear any of that financial responsibility.
2: Correct. Right. Correct. And additionally, uh, with your name, image, and likeness, you're not allowed to use any of your association with the team or like mention that you play football there for that. So like, there's still that very major piece to, to be sorted out. Name, image, and likeness is – A good start it could have been the whole thing i think if the ncaa had not you know not really kind of dropped the ball here a lot of times or at least it could have been the whole thing for quite a while if they had gotten ahead of this uh but because they didn't um you know there's there's going to be there's going to be some more changes i would have to think do you think like
1: the ncaa i feel like the way the winds are blowing this is going to lead to, you know, the NCAA losing this case. Do you think that in a way the NCAA kind of wants to lose the case and wants Congress to do all the NIL legislation for it? Oh, they definitely want a
2: congressional bailout. There's no doubt. I mean, they look. Basically the, the odds here are either that a Congress get like Congress gives them something that is extremely like in favor of the athletes, but that was probably where, where things w- would have naturally evolved to anyway. Or, Con- or the assembly gets lucky. Congress gives them something that's more restrictive and they, they, they throw an absolute party. Right. It's a lot of land, guys. <laughs> this is what it is. Right. So they, they would absolutely love for Congress to to decide this so that they don't have to. And then you, you see what I'm saying?
1: that's why they've been kicking the can down the road because we've, we've talked about it on previous shows where it's like it always gets to the point where it's like well it's going to happen soon but the ncaa tabled it. it's going to happen in january then the ncaa tables it it's just it's like at some point it's like okay they want somebody to make the decision for them they, they don't have the balls to do it themselves
0: the ncaa can take all of the announcements that schools the statements that schools have released after they get found guilty for infractions and just combine them all and just have their uh, statement when they lose the case while we are disappointed with the result, we will work together to adjust after this ruling, and we will work for a better environment for our student athletes. We look forward to partnering with our universities and our partners to create this environment. And I did want to add this: there are ath- sitting athletic directors at Power Five schools who are on the NCAA side. Like I'd, I'm not a, I'm not Mark Emmert's friend. But it's not like Mark Emmert is sitting here as the he's the meat shield uh, for university presidents and athletic directors who are very much standing with the NCAA's line of thinking in this. Like, again, power five athletic directors have released statements against NIL and believe that uh, believe in the NCAA's line of arguments for this uh, Austin case. So it we can blame Mark Emmert. But it's also still a very prevalent line of thinking within all of college athletics. Even if, as you mentioned, like there's some there's some
2: winds are blowing a certain direction. Also, something I wanted to point out: uh, I I didn't think I really fully answered it. I, this case does not necessarily make athletes employees. Okay, having all using that in this question, uh questioning is, is like that. That's not necessarily going to be in the decision. In fact, I think it probably will not be in the decision. If I had to guess where that's going, it's that schools within the bounds of educational related expenses are able to, you know, to spend more, to set up high priced internships if their boosters happen to own companies, things like that. Right. Uh, I I do not think, well, right. But like legally. Right. You know what I'm saying? Instead of, instead of, instead of moving, you know, instead of moving your dad from his job at the uh, insert large, you know, beer bottling plant here, uh, and he moves up four rungs and, and moves about an hour, you know, a, a across the spillway, uh, you know, and is now like like an upper level manager, um, hypothetically, uh, you know, like like now now it's just above board, and now you can give the internship to the kid if you want to like like a, a decent paying internship
3: can I ask uh, one more question we could do a whole podcast we yeah, probably should yeah. I think we
2: point. will do an emergency show when when, uh, when the decision comes
3: um, so I I get see I, I think the NCA does a lot of good right but I think Mark Emmett's an idiot I think his job's on the line too by the way I mean I've seen a lot more people say that hey there're more athletic directors that are frustrated with his handling of the men's and women's disparities in the NCA tournament. And some of his comments following it, the fact that we're even in this position where they're on the verge of what looks like losing this case does feel like he's there. So I am not a Mark Emmert apologist. I do, again, and I stated it earlier, I think there are a lot of positives that come out of the amateur model, mostly for like the under the radar student athlete who gets a great experience, who leaves school with no student debt, who, you know, gets a degree parlays that into a job and has a pretty good existence. Like I think the NCA actually during the NCAA tournament has done a better job of promoting that aspect as opposed to the student athlete that got ridiculed when there was the kid, um, you know, the student athlete, the last commercial and he's going to class and he looks like he has this great time. And people were like, that's not what it looks like. Um, that model title nine. How does that impact all of this impact title nine? Like if, if they are like, it's just, it's across the board. It's for men and women, so that's what, like, if that, cause I'm always in, let's maximize as much as we can. Let's get them laptops. Let's get them cell phones. Like cell phones are a requirement to be a student now. Like you need a cell phone to communicate with your instructors, other things. Um, I I'd see, I'm a little bit more skeptical that there's as much money going around the programs than you, bud. Like you're like, Hey, they're swimming in cash. They're just bearing it. I think we underestimate how expensive it is to run athletic programs when you have to match the number of scholarships with the men and women, it is expensive to put out and dole out those funds.
2: But you don't necessarily have to have the same amount of spending opportunities through your boosters for all sports. Right. Right. Like if this passes, there's nothing that says that we have to give the tennis scholarship person, you know, the same internship. That that's right. we're, we're allowing them to get that using market principles, right? The other thing here is that If the schools really want to give sports to all these Olympic athletes and athletes who don't actually have market value, they could do it out of their own money right now, football players and players from the most part who are are from low income families are subsidizing all these other sports that don't actually make the money for the schools. Like we know who has actual market value. If you had actual market value in tennis, you probably don't play college tennis that long. A couple of my friends are college tennis coaches. They're like, yeah, We'll we'll never get her. We'll never get him. They're going pro. Mm.
0: Interesting. We will have an emergency podcast when the announcement is released, including uh, 40 times for all of the interns as they come sprinting out with the decision in their hands. I want to know who in the CBS News office is preparing. I want to know that you're stretching. I want to know that you've got laser times. Oh, yeah. What do we think about all these wild – these pro day times, how are we feeling? How are we feeling about the, the good old pro day inflation that's going on uh, across the country right now? I, I, I seen more four threes and four fours than I've ever seen in an NFL draft process.
2: Okay. Let me ask this. <laughs> Do you think that the pro day times we are seeing are actually different than the normal pro day times or do we just normally not pay attention to them because we wait for the combine times i think it's the latter yeah i think so too like the typical adjustment we see is that you add like 0.1 or 0.2 to these 40 times so give me a 40 time that we're really impressed with let's try this and we'll just see how normal it feels now justin fields ran a 444 all right so justin fields we're gonna add let's add 0.15 right so justin real justin fields ran a uh 4-5-5. 4-9-5. Four five. Four. Five. Four nine five. Four, or five, excuse me. For, uh, no, sorry. Four four. Yeah. Four Law five. Law is your Apologies. area of
3: expertise, bud. Not yeah. math. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. So four, five, five. If he ran a That's... four,
2: five, five, that takes him from basically like Michael Vick, Lamar Jackson, which we don't believe he is, to still one of the most athletic quarterbacks to come out in quite a while, which I think is probably true. To me, that makes a lot more sense. I don't believe any of these no. I get these like five fakes out of five. So do you think that it's
0: just the NFL draft like and and Danny, maybe you can also speak to this as part of the NFL media as well. Is it just the NFL draft ecosystem? Because it's it's the reporters who are like, GMs are just wowed by what Kyle Pitts does. You know, like I mean are they being suckered into this as well Is like, is everybody just getting like pulled into the idea of these crazy, like look at Zach Wilson's 70 yard bomb at his pro day
3: at altitude, <laughs> thin air. Come on now. All of it is driving me insane. And I don't know what bothers me more. The, the fake 40 times or the wow throws like <laughs> that's the new thing now is the wow throws because once zach wilson did it well actually trevor lawrence kind of did it first but it didn't Mm -hmm. get quite as much because he set his feet but he threw it 70 yards in the air and it was like ooh so then zach wilson's like all right i'll one-up you i'll roll to my left and i won't stop moving and i'll flip it back to the right and everybody's like oh my gosh that's the greatest throw i've ever seen and then justin fields is like oh you like that let me throw mine and then kellen Mond gets in on the action he's like you guys are nothing i can do this too Uh, And it's all this, but I do think it kind of goes back to in our business. And this is one thing that frustrates me because I don't like hyperbole. I don't like saying things just to get a reaction, although I get accused of that all the time on Twitter. I usually have a pretty firm belief behind it, but it's like, how can we say... Like, I, I love Daniel Jeremiah, and I don't know if it was him or this, or the, the host of the show, when Zach Wilson, he's like, this might be the greatest throw I've ever seen at Pro Day. Somebody <laughs> said that. And then when Justin Fields is, is working out, somebody received an anonymous text, Who I think this is the best workout I've ever seen from a quarterback. You know, like, you get in this one-up, like, how can I state that it was a great workout so that people remember it? And it's like, it's very frustrating. Like, yeah, they're all good. But again, one of them's probably going to be awesome. Two or three will be in four years. We're going to be like, do they deserve a second contract? And one's going to fizzle out and won't be in the league in five years. Like, it's just the equation that works. So all of it, you kind of have to take with a grain of salt and it's entertainment. And I think we're getting swept up in the entertainment movement.
1: I need an NFL scout to come out of the shadows and list to the 10 greatest pro day throws they've ever (laughs) seen in a work. That long form content, like infinite scroll, that Zach Wilson throw and the Trevor Lord, like when they're doing that roll out to the left and throwing back across their body. You know what happens if they try to make that throw in a game? Picked, they get benched Uh, (laughs) because they're a rookie. And what the hell
3: are you doing trying to make that throw in a game? Well, but hold on a second, hold on a second. We have found a Sam Darnold throw. That kind of resembles it exactly. Oh, they're doing it against exactly. air! Like these guys are NFL draft prospects for a reason. There's a reason that they're being considered right. in the first round because they could do that kind of stuff against air. How many? How many throws? Singular throws? Can you remember from Breeze, from Peyton Manning, from Tom Brady? Like I don't remember one throw of Tom Brady's career where I was like, I couldn't have made that. Like, every throw that Tom Brady makes, I could probably make in itself. But I couldn't do it as consistently as he could. I couldn't read the defenses to make that decision as good as he could over the course of 20-plus years. Like, it's these wow throws are just that. They're wow throws. Like, guess who else had wow throws? Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl. Guess what they were? Incompletes, and he lost. You know? Like, Like, I just, I don't understand the wow concept that we have fallen in love with. And I wonder if, GMs are falling in love with it, but clearly they are because we've overdrafted quarterbacks for the last six or seven years now where they are guys that I look at coming into the season. I'm like, yeah, like Mac Jones, a good example coming into the year, I'm like, maybe he's a late first rounder after the season. I'm like, probably still, in the pick in the twenties. And then now he's going to go probably number three overall. Like we just keep in it because there's FOMO. We have so much FOMO with quarterbacks that you're going to miss out on the next Patrick Mahomes. So if you need one, you're taking one, no matter what.
1: That's yeah, what- I feel like I was the high guy on Mac Jones last off season. Cause Barton was giving the job to Bryce young. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Backup Mac Jones is pretty good. I I am not going top three pick. Right. with my appraisal of Mac Jones.
0: Right. But that's, it's so funny. Cause that's the thing, like general managers and scouts are, you know, paid to make these smart decisions. And it's like, they're all getting transformed back into 14 year olds on the playground. <laughs> like the, the simplest things are getting their attention. There doesn't seem to be any balance. And that's why I was, I, I, I'm willing to entertain the idea that they are feeding the media beast. Like I remember, uh, I've covered maybe three or four NFL drafts in person. And it was only when I was in Radio City Music Hall talking to other people there that I really understood the sm- idea of the smoke screen and the smoke screen being very real and like, mm-hmm. you know, planting all these stories about who likes who, how good a player is pumping up somebody else's stock so that the player you really want will get there. And so that's when it was uh, I became a little bit jaded to the whole NFL draft information game because it, it seems like not only is it entertainment but it's poker and everyone's trying to like run up the pot and call somebody else's bluff
1: yeah and it, it becomes an echo chamber and it also like I, I don't know if I've talked about this on here before but like you get the situation where Patrick Mahomes is the hot young QB so everybody goes looking for the hot next Patrick Mahomes and because Mahomes makes those kind of throws in games now we have to see everybody doing it in a pro day because now <laughs> so it's like when Zach Wilson makes that throw it's like oh this guy could be the next Patrick Mahomes. And maybe he is, but maybe there's a thousand other things that Patrick Mahomes does that he doesn't.
3: Right.
2: I do think and I'm interested in Danny's thoughts on this. Like the idea of off platform throws really starting with Aaron Rogers. And then, like you said, Tom extending to Patrick Mahomes. I think that's important, but it's really not the only thing like that can help you be a superstar. But what gets you benched is the inability to play from the pocket and deliver mm-hmm. the ball accurately, normally. Like that's a cool, but it's like a it's like an added bonus if you can do that. If you you can still be a pretty decent quarterback in the league if you are not an amazing off platform thrower. But there are definitely guys who are good off platform throwers who just don't have the accuracy and the consistency to operate from the pocket. And make like, I feel like it's being overrated a little bit. Like we used to never talk about it, and now it's like all these guys talk about. Yeah, and it's like
1: if you, it's like if you go to like an NBA draft workout, right? And there's a kid that's making consistent shots from half court. You're like, Hey, that's cool. That is a skill that tells us something, but you're not just drafting the kid because he makes a lot of shots from half court in practice.
3: Right. I think, I think it's interesting you mentioned NBA because I do think the NFL is following the lines of the NBA draft and going more on potential. Like, mm-hmm. okay, you get quarterbacks only played one year like Dwayne Haskins, like Mac Jones, um, you go for guys like Carson Wentz, who's a North Dakota State guy. You're like, yeah, whoa, that doesn't bother him anymore. And Carson Wentz is a good example of somebody who, even when he was playing and was playing great in uh, 2017, when he was you know, MVP candidate, and he's making all these cir- circus throws and wow throws and off-platform throws, like, he never learned how to curtail those so that didn't get him in trouble. And then I think one of the biggest aspects of being a quarterback in the NFL is having mental toughness. And you can say all you want about Carson Wentz's physical ailments and his surgeries and issues he's had. I think mentally he became fractured because he took so much criticism. You have to have thick skin. And I think it affected his play. Like, And we never talk about that aspect because we're too busy watching guys throw it across their body 70 yards in the air. But I do think the reason, Bud, that they want that is I think it's a, it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh from for coordinators, like if you don't call the perfect play, like you know, if I if Tom Brady, Bateman, those quarterbacks I mentioned, if they aren't cerebral and get themselves in the right play, if you don't call the perfect play, it's probably a sack. Now you draft a guy like a Zach Wilson, you call the wrong play, he could scramble out and get you that play. The problem is he could scramble out and throw a pick too, which is probably the more likely outcome with a Sam Darnold, who, you know, isn't given much of a sporting cast. And all that athleticism isn't going to bail you out. I want to tell you about the all new Stitcher
0: podcast app. It's been rebuilt from the ground up to make it easier to listen to podcasts on the go or in the revamped web player. Stitcher is home to all your favorite podcasts from classics like My Favorite Murder, This American Life, and How Did This Get Made, plus all the CBS podcasts. I own college basketball, fantasy baseball today, and of course, your favorite the Cover 3 podcast. In Stitcher, you have more control like setting your download preferences per show and the ability to listen virtually at any speed. With Stitcher, you can listen to your podcast anytime, anywhere. So give the all new Stitcher app a try. Download it in the app store or at stitcherapp.com download. Coming up on the other side, we open up the big old bag of mail, including what goes into our consideration of coaches for rankings and the like. Uh, uh, Some thoughts on Mel Tucker so far at Michigan State and the spookiest atmosphere in college football next. The perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance,
4: This
0: question is from Jake. I love you all. And I have a question regarding coaches. Chip mentioned how CBS sports will release their coaching rankings before the start of next season. My question is how do you determine and weigh the factors of a good coach? In my opinion, there are three factors that determine how good a coach is. Number one, recruiting. Number two, player development. Number three, in-game coaching decisions. Some coaches are only good at the first two cough, Kirby smart cough. Yet he is consistently viewed as a top five to 10 coach. While some coaches like Mac Brown do not get enough credit for their in-game coaching decisions. Do you think we overrate coaches who are good recruiters? And how do you judge what makes an overall good
2: coach? Go Vols, Jake. Hmm. Can you, can you give me the categories one more time? Sure. Recruiting player
0: development, In-game coaching, in-game coaching decisions. And Mac, elite in-game coach, are we sure about that one? Let's (laughs) Let's look at his total (laughs) career.
2: How many games did did Mac Brown totally botch at Texas, right? And player development, not always a thing at Texas. Like, so far, I think it's going well in North Carolina. You know, we'll see how they can take yet another step this year. I'm fairly high on them. Uh, here, here's the deal why we value recruiting so much. How many rings does Mark D'Antonio have? How many national title rings does Gary Patterson have? Give me another guy that people think does a great job with lesser talent.
1: Kirk Ferentz.
2: Kirk Ferentz. Zero rings, right? Lord, Lord of the no rings. Okay, if you want to play on the biggest of stages, you have to be able to recruit the elite players, and it is a very different thing the process about like, it's not just, Hey, like let's pitch some playing time. There's a lot that goes into it and you have to be able to handle that and manage that entire recruiting organization. Like that's a, we don't talk about that a whole lot. That's a pretty big deal. Um, So no, I I don't think recruiting is overrated, but because you don't develop your way to a national title, right? The numbers are clear and they get more clear every year. You need to load up your roster with stud upon stud upon stud. You have to be a guy like, one of the reasons I think I'm more of a believer in Cristobal than I used to be is just because I know guys on that staff. They talk recruiting every meeting. He's Cristobal is finding a way to work recruiting into every single meeting, whether it a you know meeting about recruiting or not. Like that is a primary focus and every coach in that staff knows it. Like you have to live it and breathe it. And so no, I I don't think um, it's overrated if you want to play for it all. If you don't, I think you can really do a nice job without being a great recruiter. If you want to try to get to bowl games, if you want to overachieve you can, you can win with program fit. You're not program fitting your way to a national title. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's it's like you just said, it it's
1: depends on what you're looking for for your program. If you want to win national titles, recruiting is going to be more important than anything. If you want to win consistently, but you're not really worried about winning national titles, then you probably you, you have to recruit at all three, no matter what you want to do, if you want to win games, period. So I guess... You know, then player development becomes. I feel like in-game coaching is important, but there are so as crazy as it seems because we remember them. I feel like that's probably the least important in a lot of ways because I feel like there are so few moments in the grand scheme of thing where a coach has to make a decision that's truly going to impact the outcome of the game in a major way. I think most of it is just you're running what you're running and it works and it or it doesn't, and a lot of that is based on the talent you've recruited, and the talent you developed.
3: You know, what's interesting is not one category has been referenced as far as play caller, you know? And like a Lincoln Riley is one of the elite play callers of the game. So I, I don't like having any formula. Clearly, there has to be a priority on recruiting. Totally agree on that. You have to have the talent. But it's it's relative to where, what school you're talking about, which you guys are addressed. Um, you also have to, handle boosters at a lot of places, you know, and we've seen Florida state struggle with Jimbo Fisher and the booster department. There was a struggle, you know, and it's probably one of the reasons which led to his exit. Um, So there's not, I, I don't like putting it pigeonhole it into a formula. I think he came up with some really good criteria of what you look for. I would agree with you guys in game decisions. A lot of times, you know, I've referenced this before you can buy like, You can pay this consulting company. It's going to give you like a six inch thick binder that tells you exactly what to do in any situation that your team faces. Like you can buy your way out of some of those in-game decisions and protect yourself. So you can answer after the game, Hey, this book is what told me to do this. And this is how I explain it away. Um, So I, I think it's, and if I was a consulting firm, which, you know, these people get paid a lot of money, I wouldn't have a set criteria either, you know, certain places, require different skill sets and it depends on where you are, but I think it's a good start. And I think we can all agree. Recruiting is priority number one nowadays,
0: but yeah. I, I think it's different between if you're trying to make a hire and if we are ranking coaches, if we are analysts and we are sitting here being handed a ballot, I probably am given, uh, and we talked about, uh, Gary Patterson specifically, I think at a point maybe in the big 12 show, but like I probably, I get I give I put some value there. You know, I I think that uh, Paul Christ is somebody who I think is has been rising in my own personal rankings and he has been upping success on the recruiting trail, but a lot of that has been consistent performance. Like I I think that because some of recruiting is a little bit institutional and less specifically on the head coach, I give great recruiters. Advantages and tiebreakers, but I don't think my coach. I don't think my coach ranking ballot is a list of the head coaches at the top recruiting programs. I think I probably on my like how I rank coaches. I'm ignoring um, the. I, I'm ignoring just national championships, and I am looking a little bit more at grading everyone on a curve. What is your success based on the program you're at and the expectations of that? It's how Matt Campbell. Is not going to win a national championship at Iowa State, but he's going to end up high on coach ranking lists with coaches who have national championships.
1: Yeah, and that, it's the same way. Like when I do my rankings, it's not like a set all right, criteria. It's just how are you performing at your job with the context of what your job is and what you're trying to do, which is why like in recent years with Lincoln Riley and Ryan Day, I haven't had them as high on my rankings as most of the other voters in our preseason poll because it's like okay well they stepped into a great position and they haven't really won it yet now Lincoln Riley having gone to the playoffs so many times has climbed up this year Ryan Day having gone to the playoff again and winning a game this time is going to jump up but if you're at Ohio State I'm saying you should be winning national titles so until Ryan Day is winning national titles he's probably not going to be in the top two of my coaching staff or my coaching rankings meanwhile Paul Christ His job at Wisconsin isn't to win national titles, but what his job is, he's doing a fantastic job of. So he might be in the top 10, while somebody else who you might argue has done more won't be.
2: Fair, fair.
0: All right, this next question, speaking of coaches... Oh, real quick one. Hey guys, with the masters coming up and the golf season starting to get rolling, who would win the cover three open title between y'all over 18 holes at Pinehurst. Number two,
1: I'll tell you who'd finish last <laughs> me. I don't
2: <laughs> golf.
0: <laughs>
2: how much, I mean, you, how I much think I have it's you,
0: I think it's Danny, even though I've got institutional <laughs> knowledge at number two.
2: Yeah. Have you played number two?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know where uh, I played number 2? Where? ACC Media Days circa 1995 or 6 when the when the ACC had their media days at Pinehurst. Uh that was a long time ago. Yeah, they,
2: pl- Yeah, they I think we played we didn't play number 2. We played
0: 4 um, one year. We played 4 yeah. and 1 with the ACC at different times. And uh but and I played 4 a couple times and uh like 9 holes of 8 and I played number two just once with Kyle Porter. Shout out to the First Cut Podcast. He said, uh, this was Go Cats in you, by the way, Northwestern fan. My gut says that Chip and Danny are dueling down the stretch for the title. What Go Cats in you doesn't know is that while I'm like a great part of a team, you know, you put me on a scramble. Like, I'm, I'm a bogey golfer, and I'm great for the, for the energy and the vibes. But, like, over 18 holes, I'm, I'm going to pick up enough, like – wayward holes that i'm i'm not gonna win just a, a straight score off my handicap ain't that good so my he gut
2: stroke play that's, yeah that's key
0: my gut says that danny would win this one
3: danny what are you like like a three yeah somewhere around there sick a little lower maybe no are you a plus no 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 no, no. i okay. have i've been really close to a plus then i had kids but then my oldest, Damn my kids, you know, yeah. kids <laughs> will kids ruin everything. And there is an equation for every kid. It adds two strokes to your handicap. So I have three kids. I was about a plus one. And then I came back to about a five. But now that they're getting older and my 13 year old actually plays a ton of golf. So I'm like, I play with her a lot. I've actually just recently in the past year and a half started to get some of my game back. So I've been playing a little bit better.
0: Yeah. You want to have me on a stroke where... On a hole where I've got strokes, and then I, I put myself in a position to get a good, good score for the team after uh, hitting the approach shot tight. I can give nice. you that, but over 18 <laughs> holes, it's not there. If you, guys,
1: uh, if you guys want to even the playing field, let's take this to a mini putt golf course. There Ooh. we go. game where, where, my, where my knowledge of geometry will push me through <laughs> to the top.
0: <laughs> uh, this next question from Spartan in Chicago. Long-time listener of the pod, and I've successfully encouraged many of my friends to get on the Cover 3 train. Thank you. Let's bring that back. Tell a friend all summer. Tell your friends about the Cover 3 podcast and let us know about it in the big old bag of mail uh, about you getting people on board. Uh, My question... Is regarding what do you think of Mel Tucker so far at Michigan State? His program development, his in-game coaching, and his recruiting—is it this is the same person? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, and what do you think of uh, Michigan State's attainable ceiling is in the foreseeable future? So, uh, Mel Tucker so far at Michigan State. Thoughts?
1: It's way too early to make a judgment, isn't it?
0: I think that you could, if Mel Tucker, long time. You know, defensive coordinator, long-time defensive assistant, I will say the extremely small sample size, including Colorado, at least has given me the, like, yeah, he can be a pretty good head coach at a Power 5 school. Like, I've at least done the, like, check mark for, I don't – like, do you think Mel Tucker is, falls into the category of the defensive coordinator who happens to be a head coach? The worst <laughs> – the thing that the Pac-12 is littered with?
1: I haven't seen signs that that's not the case yet, right? But I don't think he's—I don't think he's big dumb defensive coordinator. Agree. Who's the head? Yeah, coach. he's not Will Muschamp.
2: Right. I don't think. Like they actually did evolve a little bit down the stretch last year. Yeah. Uh, like they, their first couple of games, they were—it was just insane as far as run, run, third and eight. Uh, but they, they, they showed actually quicker signs of progress um, than I, I thought they would. I think Mel Tucker's a really good recruiter. Like everybody works for them seems to like him. So I, I think it's very possible he could do good things at Michigan State. The the one, I guess, caution I would have here, and I agree with Tom that it is too early because this is definitely one of those last year with year zero scenarios, personally, I think, uh, is that you know, look at the external circumstances under which Michigan State mm-hmm. uh, rose up under, under D'Antonio. I mean, you had Penn State coming off the the massive sanctions, right? And they, they got them waived, but it still took a while to build that back up. You had Michigan coming off, what, Rich Rod, Brady, Hoke, uh, and we can laugh all we want about Harbaugh, but Harbaugh's done a better job than those guys have overall, I think. So uh, if Michigan State controls what it can control, I think it, it can be a consistent bowl team and probably a win or two better than that a year. But there are certain factors outside of its control that will largely determine its ceiling. Also, look at the QB situation he inherited. Like, yeah, How much can you really put
1: on him with that as your QB?
2: I want to see how many ways Tom can sneak Rocky Lombardi into each show. Like how many shows can we keep this going? Like, did we, did we get him in, in the Pac-12 show? Listen,
3: I'm not name checking him. I'm just, you know. I worry that Mark D'Antonio has done to the coaches that follow him what Steve Spurrier did to the coaches that follow him at South Carolina. Because I don't know if South Carolina getting multiple 10-win-plus seasons is obtainable and it's kind of similar when you look at what was happening in the surroundings like it was the end of the mark Richt era there's a little bit of uncertainty you had florida post tim tebow era you know coaching you know turn, tennessee's been tennessee and kind of a weak sec east and Spurrier was able to take advantage of it similar kind of situations what you saw with antonio with some of the guy things you mentioned. So it worries me because we already deal with fans dealing with unrealistic expectations when their teams haven't done it, even in recent history. But I think both these fan bases and like, well, what happens? Why, why can't we do what Spurrier did? Why can't you do what Mark D'Antonio did? And I think it was the perfect storm for those coaches and good coaches, not to take away from what they did, but you do need help at programs like these to have that run of success.
0: This next question is from snow day. Love the pod. To be honest, I always love Danny, but chip had to grow on me. <laughs> there you go. I'll go ahead and take that one. Uh, and that's that I'm an acquired taste. That is absolutely true. If you look at aerial pictures of Ohio stadium, AKA the shoe, you can usually see two identical looking buildings pretty close to it. Those are old dorm buildings and convicted murderer and cannibal Jeffrey Dahmer used to live in the one closest to the stadium. Isn't that cool? Question mark. <laughs> My question is, what do you think is the spookiest atmosphere or location in college football?
3: How did you not save this for a Halloween episode? Because like, I, I mean, <laughs> we get
0: to, that's so far away. <laughs> like, yes, it is.
3: <laughs>
1: I could see the two buildings. I'm looking, as our questioner asked, wow. I wonder which floor he lived on.
0: 13th. Definitely. Right? Yeah.
1: Totally. I Um, can't see the 13th floor from this shot.
0: Spookiest uh, atmospheres. I always, number one, I I go to any one of these campuses slash stadiums that's in a remote location, and it's got to be when we are in the, like, fog slash like starting to get cold kind of atmosphere, especially at night. Like, I mean, immediately the Pacific Northwest is easy because yeah. you start thinking about Pullman. You start thinking about Corvallis, like those, those really come to mind, but you can get some like, oh man, I wish, wish Coca was on the horn here. Like I, f- I think West Virginia could be a spooky atmosphere, in like on the right during kind of evening. the day when it's sunny. <laughs> like, any any kind of like rolling hills or any anything that's a little bit foggy. remote, Wake foggy, count?
2: Wake Forest. I don't know, like like I kind of think like small campus, small little stadium. You know, just Charlottes-
3: I, I know. Like some of these campuses are beautiful in the daytime, but, like Charlottesville. I think about UVA. That's like I mean, up in kind, kind of like wine know, country little bit. Yeah. And then you got a lot of ghosts of like Thomas Jefferson's past that could be creeping <laughs> around there. Like I have bad nightmares from being there on Thursday night and losing. That place is spooky to me anytime I go back.
0: They do have enough secret societies that they've performed <laughs> rituals uh and buried things all around that campus. Oh,
3: any like I like Yale, any of those Ivy League ones, those I drove because uh, when I lived in Connecticut, we went to New Haven for pizza a couple times. And there's like the Skull and Bones secret building is there. Like you yep. can see it. And it's like this concrete block building. And there's there's a partner was campus. here written on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's some spookiness about the, some of those Ivy League schools, too.
1: I think Northwestern on certain days, because it's like right along the lake. And you know, if there's fog coming into the lake and it's nighttime and it's dark and they've got like all that Gothic lettering and signage around the campus, I think that could be kind of spooky.
0: Agree. All right. Let's see. We got time for one more. Let's do, we want to do Clemson offensive line recruiting or yeah, let's do that one. This is a, a long question and it also chimes in on a couple things. Rob, what's up fellas. Love the pod. But y'all never responded to my last five-star review. Maybe because I didn't ask a question and probably rambled. This is a a rambling review, by the way. Uh, But much love to you, Rob. But in response to the 2020 off-season topic, you cannot eat your way through a grocery store. An average size of 40,000 square feet uh, store would have enough frozen TV dinners to last one individual four-plus years if they ate three per day. As someone who works in the industry, I had a good chuckle at that. Moving on, I was listening to today's mailbag. The rail in Blacksburg is at a bar called Top of the Stairs. A rail on the bar setup holds all the well liquors and mixers. The rail is a smattering of all the well liquors and mixers like Triple Sec. It's very good. I don't remember it. It's very good (laughs) and will light you up. As a Clemson fan, I always make the trick to Blacksburg when they're on the away schedule college team sponsor topic. Love the new spring reference Too funny. We get killed by South Carolina fans for our player tithing massage, envy, dot, dot, dot too soon. So is an obvious one for Clemson Duke energy. Hartwell. It's the last lake on Duke energy, uh, lakes that run from North Carolina to the South Carolina, Georgia border. Hey, new guy. I believe, uh, Club, I believe Clubnick is pronounced Clubnick, not Klubnik. Y'all talked about him in response to the Ty Simpson-Tabama commitment and where Clemson had turned for its QB take. Pumped about that dude. I'm warming up to Bud, although it's hard to swallow another FSU dude on the pod. My guy Danny was already repping the spear. Question. Again, long. Uh, question. Clemson's offensive line recruiting had been underwhelming for years, and I was really pumped about the class that featured Walker Park's Paul Chio, Mitchell Mays, and Bryn Tucker. Do you think that Clemson's scheme on offense sets them back with offensive line recruits? It seems like we miss out on top-rated dudes, and when we do hit on a Jackson Comeran or Mitch Hyatt, they don't ever get drafted high. John Simpson was the first Clemson offensive lineman to get drafted since 2014. Does Robbie Caldwell need to call it a career, or is Dabo and Elliott's scheme the issue?
2: So uh, I'm, I'm glad he actually mentioned that the, the stat uh, about the guy drafted in 2014. Clemson went a long time without really having any offensive lineman drafted highly, and even longer with, with you know, excuse me, went a long time having guys drafted, and then like even longer without having you know many guys drafted highly. Um, elite offensive linemen are some of the toughest players to recruit because let's face it, like, guy just doesn't make that many guys that big who can move that fast. And, like, it's not that hard to get a four-star receiver. There's a lot of dudes who can run. You know, it is harder to get those elite-level recruits. And because Clemson did not have the success, like the proven success of sending guys to the NFL at that position, I really think they had to wait a little bit to to get some of those guys in in terms of, hey, look, that's a school I can go to, and they're winning a lot, right? Dabo can pitch that as, hey, you're kind of the missing piece for us to be winning even more. And I think he successfully did start to do that some – you know, in like 18, 19 classes and, and 20, they're doing a much better job of it now. Um, like they're, they're signing just as many four and five stars, if not more, than they are three stars. They obviously have, you know, two committed right now as well. Uh, I, I don't think it's necessarily a scheme related issue. Uh, and, and I don't think it's really a you know, strength and conditioning related issue because they it's not like Clemson turns out a bunch of guys who, who can't run or, or can't lift. At other positions, I mean, just see the you know the defensive line. I, I think it just took some time, really. Like Clemson, even when Clemson wasn't killing everybody, they still were sending NFL guys on the defensive line, and so it was easier to recruit with your positional success for that. With offensive line, they didn't have that, so I think it was a bit of a delayed effect. And I also think to his point of when we when we do sign highly rated guys, they don't they don't turn out to be stars. I think you have a sample size issue there. I know he he cited like like two. I mean, to me, sample size of two is, is simply not enough. We know for a fact that if you sign a lot of these guys who we, we rate highly, you're going to send a lot of them to the pros. All
3: right. I got – this is my this is my book of notes. I got a notebook Ooh. all through here. I keep them all the time when I'm jotting down prep stuff, so I'm glad I had it. So, I've read this on here before. Uh, this, I actually found this stat after their – playoff loss to Ohio State because Trevor Lawrence was getting hit a lot. And you're like, oh, they're getting whooped up front in the offensive line. Mm -hmm. And against their better competition, they did get beat up front. So in the last decade, since 2010, Clemson has had three offensive linemen drafted, zero first rounders. Bama has had 10 drafted, four first rounders. And Ohio State has had 11 offensive linemen drafted with two first rounders. Like that's a pretty big disparity Um, and I think a lot of it just has to do with priority. Like I think they've emphasized, I think hopefully they do self-scouting, which I'm sure they do. And they look at it and they say, you know what? We are getting whooped up front. So we have to emphasize that because I think you can become enamored with the quarterbacks, with the running backs, with the skill positions, because they've had awesome players at those positions and on the defensive side of the ball and the defensive line. But I think that's one area that they've kind of reprioritized. So I'm sure in another decade, You'll see these numbers start to get a little bit more balanced. Um, because I think it has been an issue for Clemson. I don't think it's scheme related. I, I think, you know, I, I think it's just a priority that they haven't prioritized. And they've been able to get away with it, too. I think that's one thing you notice when you have Deshaun Watson uh, playing for you, who his escapability is top notch. And when he played against Alabama, he ran the ball more than he did against everybody else. Same thing with Trevor Lawrence. When he played against the better teams, they ran him more. He got out of trouble more often. I think they were able to get away with it, and I think they're realizing, okay, we want to have a little bit more of forgiveness if our quarterback isn't elite-level scrambling around, so let's try to boost up our offensive line.
0: I mean, take it back to when they were a little low Clemson, you know, like real little low Clemson. The order of priority, I think, has matched what you need to be successful because quarterbacks, wide receivers, defensive line. Like, so those were the first places where Clemson has been elite. And so I, I can't really argue with that priority, right? Like, that's that, if we, um, if we've got game changer at quarterback, if we can overwhelm you on the outside with multiple future pros, and if we can get after the, get after the passer and create some pressure up front. It's a good way to win a lot of football games. So it's like, as Clemson continues, you know, it's like, we, we look at them in the small picture, but in the big picture, when they're going up against an Alabama or an Ohio state, like offensive line, sounds like it's the the next spot to really level up. So definitely something that I'm sure Clemson has in mind next week. We're back. We're going to finish the Pac-12 South. Then we will turn our attention to Notre Dame, BYU, top schools from the group of five, independence in group of five. Heck, maybe even we get a Liberty on here. Anybody know what the Liberty's spring practice schedule is? I don't know. I'll give, give you the Hugh Freeze hand from the, uh, the coaching box right here. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Elliott 3 You can follow him at Tom Fernelli. You can follow him at Danny Cadell. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much.
1: Thank you.
4: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.